Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Hey, Ax, here we are after a very tough week. Uh, country on fire. Uh, the president being at his worst, which is saying something. It is a grim time. For all of us, more than a country on fire is a country in heartache yeah. over what we have seen uh, the 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 murder of George Floyd uh, in such gruesome gruesome detail on on video has has shocked the conscience of the nation. Probably not shocked, appalled, but not shocked people in communities of color who have experienced these things uh, on way too regular a basis, but. We are a, a hurting country right now. And uh, I know Robert Gibbs is someone who appreciates uh, that moment, having worked on these kinds of issues. Robert Gibbs, when you and I were in the White House, we saw some difficult times, but I don't remember any uh, quite as painful as this. This week has, uh, has opened up, or reopened, I should say, some extraordinarily raw wounds. And uh, it's a it is a tumultuous time in our country's history. The other thing that's on my mind is how presidential campaigns work. And I know there's much more, there are weightier issues here, but I, you know, back in January and February, people were saying, well, is this race going to be de- determined by the impeachment? And in, you know, the spring, it was, is it going to be determined by the coronavirus and the economic downturn as a result of it still may be the case, by the way. But, you know, I said back then that the impeachment was going to be way in the rearview mirror and there would be events that we could not know in advance that were going to impact on this election. Mm -hmm. This has been a week ago. We were not we were not talking about this. We were not talking about this. That's the inside joke between those of us who've done it. The media always covers everything like the election is in five days. Yeah. And it's going to be a big, bumpy election. And who better to help us than our special guest hack today? Robert Gibbs, who has uh, lived through a lot of these moments. Robert, welcome. Good to have you. Yeah, so last night was sort of surreal, guys. The uh, the whole scene at the White House, the, the um, uh, you know, the, 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 the attorney general examining the troops, uh, the troops moving in on peaceful protesters, the president giving this strange and uh, concerning speech uh, in the Rose Garden. And then, uh, you know, it turns out they cleared out the protesters so he could go over across the street, hold up a Bible in front of, uh, yeah. of uh, St. Saint, Saint John's Church, uh, and go back inside. Uh, strange, strange stuff. Oh, it was such bizarre. First of all, I was waiting to hear his favorite scripture, but of course there is none. He was holding the Bible like it was a dead squirrel or something he'd found under the porch on every level. You know, of all the things that offended me there, seeing Mark Miley, uh, chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, in uniform, inspecting a National Guard unit, oddly the only National Guard unit in the country that reports directly to the president, because the mayor of D.C. would have had nothing to do with that, uh, as as federal soldiers cleared pre-curfew 
cleared a park so the president and a few of his dregs could wander around for 15 minutes and look tough. That is really crossing a line of how the U.S. military uh, is supposed to stay out of domestic politics. And I think he, among others, has some splaining to do today. I thought it was disgraceful behavior. It was disgraceful on every level, and it hurt Trump. It, it just showed what a, what a tiny little person he is in the biggest job in the world. We all wondered, and, and you, you read stories over the weekend around the White House debating having Trump speak and, and kind of concluding after some time in the bunker that he really didn't have much to add, right? So th- they've decided he's unable to quell and bring calm. Uh, and, you know, then he, he has this call with the governors and he uses the word dominate, right? We have to dominate the streets. And, and obviously the image, imagery of dominion of one over another uh, leads him out of the White House into the Rose Garden. Uh, and you realize that he's not only incapable, but he's unwilling to provide that sort of calm and comfort and decides now is the moment to kind of leap into the breach and create the wedge of, of these pictures in service to his uh, political fortunes, which among many of the groups I'm sure he's hoping to regain some status with, uh, you know, he, he, he gasses Americans to provide a photo op. And as, as you said, Murphy, awkwardly holds a Bible as if it were um, a trophy and not something to be reflected on or read. That duality that you're talking about, that tug and pull uh, is the one we've seen throughout his presidency. The, 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 uh, the demands of the presidency to be president of the United States versus his instinct, which is to pander to his base. And the base always ultimately wins in that uh, in that tug of war. What was particularly chilling about last night was uh, the reporting that he was he was unhappy about the image of him having been taken to the bunker underneath the the White House <laughs> on Friday night. That he didn't ma- he didn't think it looked manly uh, enough, and so he wanted to do this trip across the street uh, in order to show his. Uh, his bravado, his, 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 his manhood. Uh, of course he used the, you know, he used military police and others, uh, to clear people out, uh, so that there would be absolutely no threat to him yeah. as he went over, uh, to pose in front of the church, uh, with the Bible. Let's guys, let's just listen to a small portion of his, uh, of his, uh, diatribe in the Rose Garden. Therefore, The following measures are going into effect immediately. First, we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. So, Murphy, first of all, let's just make clear he can't order the United States military into states without an invitation from the governors of those states, and they're not likely to give him 
that invitation. It's one more sort of act of bravado on his part that has no basis in fact. But I want to ask you a political question. Um, he's making a calculation. That we have seen images across this country of uh, arsonists and looters uh, amid uh, a sea of peaceful protesters, but the knights have often belonged to the arsonists and the looters. And he is, you know, just hearkening back to 68. That is what Nick, Nixon ran as the law and order president uh, candidate. That's what that's what uh, Trump is calling himself now, the law and order president. He ran against disorder uh, and uh, and won on that basis. And George Wallace siphoned off some votes on the same theme uh, from Humphrey. Uh, do you think this works for him with his base? Do you think he will? Well, with his base, things of up course. With his base? And yeah, what about yeah, what, what yeah, about but, with some with some portion of that suburban electorate that has slipped away from him? I'd be concerned if I were the Dems. I mean, Trump is a weak man who fetishizes strength, which is why you you had that kind of rhetoric. It's so transparent and pathetic. And the best they could come up with was Operation Bone Spurs to, you know, as we discussed, stroll across the street. <laughs> the, the larger question, though, I mean, I'm here in the L.A. media market, and I'm close to that Melrose Mac store that became nationally famous uh, during the great computer giveaway. Um, I can tell you the dominant story to the 16 million people, and it's going to affect local politics more than national because of the nature of California, but has been looting, has been disorder, has been, were the cops. Now, last night, the LAPD, to its great credit, uh, really stepped up and did a great job of balancing restraint and aggression uh, with the looters. But there is always an opportunity uh, Martin Luther King said it. When, whenever the rioting starts, it helps George Wallace. So the traditional textbook would say there is a law and order opportunity if the Democrats allow themselves to be put on the defensive going forward on the law and order part of the equation. Now, I think what may be different now, as many things are, is that Trump has so damaged himself with this cartoonish behavior and incompetence that I think his problems are dug in deep enough that just running around saying I'm the law and order guy will not help him outside his favorite political sector, which is the Republican primary. He's constantly trying to win the Republican primary. He's good at it. The problem is that's not nearly, as we've said for a year, enough to win the general election. So I think it's less about Trump, who will definitely try to run with this, and more about would the Democrats watch their flank on law and order, and security enough that Trump does not get an opportunity where suburban voters start to think that the Democrats are going to be so defensive about this stuff on race that we cannot trust them in these areas. And that's easy for Biden to head off. And, you know, we'll talk about his speech in a minute, but they have to watch that because looters, nobody is on the political side of looting. And if you're perceived there in, in white Republican suburbs, they start getting scared. It is an opportunity for Trump and history has proven that. Gibbs, uh, look, I think that one of Trump's problems is that the word order and Trump don't necessarily go together, particularly. And using words like dominate, uh, which he thinks are, are, are galvanizing and, and robust, have real meaning. And that's actually why we're in the mess we're in in the first place, because of, of, of words like that and attitudes like that. Nonetheless, uh, there, there, there is a trap if, uh, if Democrats in responding to Trump uh, swing too far in the other direction. I actually haven't seen evidence of that. Right. 
but uh, but but that is a that is a potential trap. I think there's no doubt that it is a potential trap, and as you said, thus far, I, I haven't seen evidence that that people have fallen into it. There was a poll overnight, a kind of a quick morning consult poll that had, um, you know, that asked voters, you know, judge how Trump is handling the protests. Uh, excellent, good, twenty percent; fair, poor, fifty-four percent. That'll take, I, as you and I've talked about. I, I, I want to see some polling in five or six days when we get kind of this through, and 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 people have a chance to digest it. I think it's important for that nineteen sixty-eight analogy. You mentioned this. He, he's not playing the Nixon character in in nineteen sixty-eight. He's playing very clearly the George Wallace character. Mm-hmm. And and in reality, Nixon had the ability to, quite frankly. Yeah do exactly what he needed to do in that election mm-hmm. by playing off of both candidates. Yeah, he and, triangulated. And, right. Wallace did the heavy lifting and the scaremongering. And Nixon, and he Nixon was able to present Wallace as another face of disorder. If you're Trump and you're sitting at the table and you look at your pair of twos and you ask yourself, do I, uh, do I want to run this election on who can combat the coronavirus and rebuild the economy, or do I want to saddle up my horse inside the law and order culture war yeah, absolutely. Uh, and try to get, as Murphy talked about, those suburban women who are worried about mm-hmm. security or, you know, seniors, which you know, w- Democrats haven't won seniors in 20 years. And yeah. Biden's in winning any, any number of polls, he's at t- Biden's at 10 or 20 percent. Uh, a, a, a 10 to 20 percent positive gap with seniors ahead of with them, and so I think that campaign is looking at many of those subgroups and realizing that, quite frankly, they'd much rather this is a much more controllable situation, one that, quite frankly, they think he can dominate much, much better than than worrying about a virus that, quite frankly, he's frustrated he can't control. Yeah. And they, I'll tell you, in the Trump world, they pride themselves on being able to bait the Democrats into culture fights. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do, the Trump guys are going to do a much cruder, more awful version of the old John Major line of it's time to understand less and condemn more and try to pull the Democrats into that and try to try to make racial tension the fuel of the election. And if that happens, that that is much more, as you say, Robert, more fertile ground for Trump than where he is now with shit poll numbers and total defense. The good news is Trump will overcompensate, which he always does, like he did last night, and get himself into more trouble. He's not adroit. Yeah, I think that... Uh He's also looking at the likelihood, if uh, he listens at all to the people who advise him on the science of this, that we could have a rough fall relative to the coronavirus. And all of these protests, sadly, may contribute to, uh, to, to additional problems relative to the coronavirus. And the economy may bounce back, but it's not going to bounce back uh, uh, to the point where you can say, we're, we're, we're recovered uh, by yeah. election day. So he's got, he's got problems. Listen, there was a Washington Post poll over the weekend. Um, and the notable thing about it, like I don't put credence in any one poll, um, but the last time they polled in March, they had the race uh, at two points, Biden over Trump. Now they have it at 10. But the interesting thing about the poll was when you, uh, when you uh, look at the, the, the most certain to vote voters and the most enthusiastic voters, uh, the lead shrinks to five. 
part of that though is a function of Trump is in that poll, and I'm I'm more of a critic of that poll than I'm of most. Yeah. A, uh, it's a function of Trump is down to his rock bottom in that data. So the rock bottom is always going to love you more. But if nobody votes and it's down to an intensity fight, I can see where you're going with this. Yes. There, there's, there's I think that's there. what they were, that's where they're going. I mean, they're going to, we just have to, we got to raise our, uh, we got to torque this thing up to red, 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 white hot, uh, and get as many of our people out as possible and hope that lack of enthusiasm uh about biden will uh will hold down the other turnout i mean i just you know the thing about this enthusiasm thing robert is uh that they ask the question are you enthusiastic about voting for trump are you enthusiastic about voting for biden uh but the but you know the real question is for a lot of those democratic voters are is are you enthusiastic about voting against trump right I would think that's the driver, but Robert, what's your take? I, I just think this will be a high turnout election because of Trump. I think it will be a very high turnout election. I think it was that poll or another one that already had turnout guesses above 60%, which is sky high for this point in the election. I think Biden probably suffers a bit from the fact that he's yet to fully consolidate the Democratic electorate. Right? He, remember, he becomes the nominee and the election largely gets frozen. Right. He's not been out much. He's been, uh, you know, broadcasting mm -hmm. from the basement, which uh, I think has not allowed him in, in many ways to, to do this. So I, I think that enthusiasm number certainly bears monitoring and something that the Biden campaign and others will want to watch. I think another point I pick up, uh, David, that you mentioned that, that that is a challenge for the Trump campaign is, again, that. And I don't want to get too sucked into 1968, but remember, Richard Nixon's not the incumbent, right? And so the discord and the, the disunity and the chaos that you see on TV, he's not in control of. He's not in charge of. And um, I think that's going to complicate a bit of the Trump messaging. I couldn't agree with you more. Plus, I point out that uh, in 68, uh, where we also had... Uh, these uh, terrible assassinations of Kennedy and King. Right. We also, there was a Democratic convention in late August that erupted into chaos uh, that lent uh, yes. some, uh, you know, this is, I hope that we don't forget some of the lessons of, of George Floyd. I hope we don't forget George Floyd and uh, the others who've lost their lives recently in incidents that were clearly racially uh, motivated. But, it is June, and the election's in November. And I'll say what I said in January. There are going to be intervening events. Oh, a ton of them. It's, it's not clear that you can pitch your whole campaign around this in, uh, in June. You mentioned Biden being in the basement. He came out of the basement, uh, and he's been coming out more recently. He made a hell of a speech today. Well, he had this great opportunity, which is we've been lacking a head of state, you know, a president. And that vacuum under Trump can never fill it. And it's been the big screaming, gaping hole in the Trump presidency. And Biden, particularly after the cartoon last night and with Trump and, and his tour of the park, there was a perfect moment. And Biden rose to it. I think it was the strongest Biden speech yet. Joe didn't even have to go to his already proven applause line, which is in conclusion. You know, yes. Actually, I wanted to hear it all. So I think and it, it was all over the media today. And I think I think it'll be Biden's breakthrough moment 
moment here, and it'll do a lot to fill in behind those those good polling numbers, which is what the Biden folks desperately need to do. Their their ballot number, which is the fire Trump number, is running ahead as enthusiasm shows of the perception of Joe. And I I thought he took a big giant step forward. And my guess is the Democratic bedwetting uh, division, which is not small. That's a large a group, bit. my friend. I was going to say it's a massive army. Uh, <laughs> so all in all, I got it. You know, we've been critical from time we've to time. We've got a uh, we've the Democratic Party actually has a uh, a a mass purchase contract with depends because of uh, <laughs> this but robert before you comment can we just queue up the uh clip from biden and then there's another one that i want to play on the other side after you you speak to this robert look i look at the presidency as a very big job and nobody will get it right every time and i won't either but i promise you this I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate. I'll seek to heal the racial wounds that have long plagued our country, not use them for political gain. I'll do my job and I will take responsibility. I won't blame others. I'll never forget. I will never forget. I promise you, this job is not about me. It's about you. It's about us. So that goes right to Murphy's point, Robert. That was Joe Biden being the president that people uh, yearn for uh, right now in this moment. And it was very, very effective, I thought. We talk about many of these elections are, I think you, you can win and lose an election as much on a day that isn't marked previously on the calendar than you can by some that are. Right. We know the big moments, whether the primaries or whether the debates or, or some of those things that are going to happen. But these non-planned for moments where it calls for reaction are, are really important to do well. And a president has inherent advantages. They have the podium. They have the seal. They have this, the, the, all that sort of pomp and circumstance. And it's why incumbents don't lose as, as much as, as you would think. You've got to fill these moments by being an acting presidential. People get a moment to look at you split screen and decide whether or not, based on your reaction to the moment, whether they can picture you filling the job. And I think there's no doubt that Biden sees the moment in a timely way after last night and, and very more than adequately filled that void. Uh, to me, the question... I think that comes out of this is for Biden. What next? I think mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've reached a, an inflection point in this campaign frozen by coronavirus that it's really imperative that Biden continue to do the things he did today, get out of the house and go places, deliver remarks, be present. It, it is clear the media mm -hmm. is not going to treat, Joe Biden in the basement the same way they're going to treat Joe Biden on a stage. Or even on the first floor. Yeah, totally yeah. proven now. I think this taught the Biden people that they can do in a coronavirus environment some big stage moments and 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 get media, which is another big step forward. And I think yeah. they've got to they've got to build on that. They've got to build on that. I mean, I know Axe, you've 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 talked about putting uh um putting him on an, on a plane and and going to Minneapolis, I, I think that would be um, mm -hmm. that would be 
powerful. Clinton went to L.A. in 1992, as did George H.W. Bush. You, you, there are moments that you have to seize. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't, you'll regret them. Uh, and if you play them right, you can look like a president. I'm sure they're balancing concerns about his health and safety with these strategic imperatives, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. And let me just say, you know, Donald Trump bought an impeachment trying to stop Joe Biden from becoming the presidential nominee uh, because he feared that he would be harder to stereotype in these cultural divide moments. And standing on that stage today, you could see why. And Mike, let's just hear the other clip that we grabbed from this speech this morning because I thought it was a pretty effective rebuke of Trump's moment last night. The president held up the Bible at St. John's Church yesterday. I just wish he opened it once in a while instead of brandishing it. If he opened it, he could have learned something. They're all called to love one another as we love ourselves. It's really hard work, but it's the work of America. Donald Trump is interested in doing that work. Yeah, no, no. Uh, three clips, and we ch- send an invoice, by the way. But it, it, it was a it was a very good, um, very again. Th- this whole always thinking this one. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the whole thing was the perfect anti-Trump president versus ruffian contrast. Uh, everything the best of Biden. So I also think. I mean, I I've, I've been for a Minneapolis trip, but frankly. If I were Biden, now that I know the big platform and being president fills a huge need in the election and and reinforces my campaign, I would be thinking next week of the pivot to the big economic recovery team with surrogates who are not just politicians or, you know, the people from one community or I, I want to turn the, the mirror forward and say, where do we go from here? Rather than kind of roll in the ashes of the pain and say, all right, we, we're, clearly jobs for everybody. You know, yeah. here's how we bring business, private sector together uh, with some faces that have credibility outside of politics and start having team grown up talking about that to take that well, away. from I, Trump. I think that they are working on some big economic pieces from what I understand, and they're going to roll them out in the near term. And I think that is smart. I think you're absolutely right. No, but with surrogates, that's the key point. It, it can't just be politician talk from a, you know, a bunch of old right. Democratic polls. It has to be the, the Apollo project of rebuilding the country. But you got to give them something to work with. Of course. And they got to roll that out. And I think they will uh, roll that out. But you're, you know, I think that's important, not just because it, it is a sequentially right, but because I do think that as as raw as this moment is, attention is going to go back to the economy. It's going to go back to the virus. It's and and the reality is that the president of the United States on January twentieth, two thousand twenty-one, is still going to be dealing with a catastrophic economic situation relative to employment, and uh, and I think. You want to point people to, well, we know what Trump has going here. We know what he has under the hood. Here's what I'm offering you. Right, exactly. And change the channel to grown-up economic job for you rebuilding rather Mm -hmm. than Trump praying for a summer of riots. Well, and I I think, you know, you mentioned this earlier, uh, Axe, this, you know, people tend to think of, okay, so what's this election going to be about, right? What's the bumper sticker? And in reality, I think it's the confluence of the virus, the economic destruction, and what we've seen happen in in Minneapolis, because they're so interconnected. 
right? I mean, th- th- this notion of when your destiny and your life expectancy are decided more by your zip code than anything else mm-hmm. uh, in a place as powerful as America, it, it gives you the opening to have discussions about how to rebuild an economy that's 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 fair for those that are involved to talk about the sort of health disparities uh, that we see that's led, um, you know, African-Americans and, 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 and poor Hispanics and poor whites to be more susceptible yeah. to, uh, to death by coronavirus than, uh, than somebody that lives uh, in a more affluent place. And I think that interconnectivity, and I, I agree with you, Murphy, it, it, the moment is here to, again, to start that inflection point, to start that the, the bigger campaign by laying out some of those bigger economic themes. Yeah, one hopes that that is the, the legacy of George Floyd will be a genuine search for understanding and uh, for realization that we haven't confronted, uh, we haven't confronted this legacy that runs 400 years back and we pay a terrible price for it. And citizens uh, of our country, people of color, uh, obviously bear the brunt of it. But we all are, we, we all suffer uh, because of uh, the burdens that they bear. And so, I don't know, I, uh, I, I agree with you, Gibbs. This is all, it is all of a piece. But given the nature of, uh, of campaigns and given the nature of events, um, this thing is going to turn in into the direction of some of these other issues, and it's not just going to be narrowly framed as a issue of uh, community and police relation, which is good for yeah. Biden because the narrow grievance war uh, turns into racial tension. And again, when you're fighting Trump, you're fighting a racist who will go to the basis instincts. Now, next big thing for Biden is going to be vice presidential pick. Yeah. So, what do you guys think? I know what conventional wisdom says. I, of course, disagree with it, but I want to hear what you two veteran communists think about all this as people from inside the Democratic world. Well, Comrade Gibbs. I think it changes a little bit, uh, maybe some of the individual players, uh, you know, m- maybe an, an, an Amy Klobuchar has a harder time um, because of her prosecutorial background uh, and some of the events in, in Minneapolis. I, I still tend to believe that um, above all, Biden will look for somebody that he feels comfortable has a relationship with and and above all instead of trying look instead of trying to meet some individual test for some moment in time mm-hmm. the, the, because quite frankly had we picked a vice president two months ago you'd pick somebody maybe than you would at this point and chances are if you pick somebody if you were to say let's pick somebody now it may be different two months from now Who, who's capable of Who's capable of taking over? Who's competent enough to run the government uh, in the event that that something happens? That there's Gina Raimondo, but <laughs> I'm on a quixotic mission. But does it have to be Kamala Harris? I mean, that's what the DCCW is. I'm curious if you guys buy that or not. No, I, to me, I look. I would. I, I think at this point, I think I'm on the Gretchen Whitmer bandwagon right now. Uh, I think as somebody who has done really she her she may not have been governor for long but her instincts are really good right she knows when to kind of swat donald trump away and she knows when to engage him uh-huh. um you know I, she she has had to deal with 
protests. He's had to deal with, uh, you know, clowns bringing uh, semi-automatic weapons into the Capitol to try to intimidate her. I think she feels and seems pretty tough. But and, and again, I think somebody who can run the machinery of a government uh, and, and, you know, Governor Raimondo is is one of those people. Yeah, no, look, there are two there are two theories of vice presidential selections. One is you pick someone who strengthens a flank, uh, uh, shores up a perceived weakness, uh, fits a need like that. Um, and the other is that you pick someone and, you know, the going way back in history, it was like Carter picking Walter Mondale because liberals didn't trust him. Um, uh, and the other th- and theory is that you amplify your strength. Uh, and, uh, that was, uh, Clinton picking uh, Al Gore, uh, who was very much like him and sent the same Mm -hmm. kind of message. Um, In this case, it seems to me that there is an additional factor, and it's the one you guys mentioned, which is it's not a secret. The guy is 78 years old. There's a, you know, this person could be president of the United States, will probably be a candidate for president of the United States in 2024. It, It adds more weight to this. Um, you know, I I think I would look uh, I, I would look to the governors. There is going to be additional pressure um, on him uh, to pick a candidate of color uh, in order to demonstrate a sense of uh, of equity uh, and inclusion, and to uh, from a crass political standpoint, on the theory that that will uh, further um, motivate uh, ba- uh, voters in the Democratic base. I'm not a big believer in the base motivating uh, value of vice presidential candidates. I don't think there's a lot of history to support uh, that. Uh, so, you know, if I were here, I'd just focus on the person that he thinks can do the best job, that the best job and who looks plausible as a president. Maybe that leads him to Kamala Harris. The governors, I think, are people he should look at, both uh, Whitmer and Raimondo. You know, I can give you guys my, uh, I got to break my Rahm Emanuel rule and actually agree with you. I've been trying not to agree so much, but uh, I think that's a very sober analysis. And I, I thought I, you were going to say express yourself without uh, using a swear word. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's fucking impossible, as Rahm would say. <laughs> but so I, let me make one more, and I agree on Whitmer. I think she'd be an adroit choice. And David, I agree with what you said. You know, there's one other kind of weird uh, and she's definitely a dark horse in this. Version. I mean, she was for Bloomberg, not Biden, other stuff like that. But for Raimundo, there's one other kind of interesting aspect to it politically, which is if you pick one of the 2024 stars who are already planning whether to start in Concord or Nashua, New Hampshire in four years, then the other stars are going to be like, oh, hell, I'm behind now that bastard Biden when I in the Senate. Maybe I'll make a little trouble later getting, a, you know, they all start calculating. If you pick a non-star that is not seen as a threat in the presidential race, somebody who's seen as weaker in democratic politics and more as a governing choice, it's almost a slight effective appeasement to them. Because Raimundo is less threatening politically to future aspirants, maybe to their error, she could be a very good vice president, than, I mean, if a Kamala wins, then a Klobuchar and, you know, Stacey Abrams lose. So, I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of interesting to maybe go the super bureaucrat governing choice as a way to kind of let everybody have a palatable political loss in the pick. I hear your theory. Oh, I know it's esoteric. I think it's but- a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch because I think anybody who is the vice president in a Biden administration 
is going to be prominent in uh, the the future of democratic politics uh, because uh, not only is it uh, possible and you know that they, they they end up pressed into service, but um, they're also going to have to carry a big load. I think that the the um, you know the uh, Joe Biden, who I think was probably as good a vice president as we've seen because he he was impeccably uh, loyal in public. He was unflinchingly honest and private, and he took on some really big assignments, and one of them was running the Recovery Act. I think this VP is going to be more than just a standby equipment. This v- VP is going to have to take on administrative roles and oh, yeah. political roles and so on. Especially the fiscal stuff. Uh, so I think the notion that they're somehow going to that people aren't, aren't going to understand that this person is probably going to be a major presence and likely the nominee in 2024. I think that's unlikely. But I, Governor Raimondo, uh, if she were here, would pass along her uh, thanks for <laughs> for you going every, every trying to squeeze every bit of juice out all of this. in for good government it's it's my it's my holy cause second only to voter fraud in chicago my other go-to topic but yes yeah i know um, i know yes I'm, I'm worried for governor Raimondo though uh, <laughs> no, Murphy, I'm that, that, that you are the uh <laughs> i'm the yeah. best she's got me and i'm George pretty Will. sure that the jacket cover of her next book isn't going to be endorsed by mike murphy but it's uh no no you know. she's putting out a statement now i've never met him never right. liked him right uh you know, I don't know where this came from. You know, we've we've got a George Will column. If we get Bill Crystal, I think you will have. I mean, that would be. <laughs> oh, he's for her. I've been right. telling See, him, just don't say the, it. We don't want to kill her off. We've exactly. already wounded you're, her. You're gonna torpedo that ship. Let me let me just uh, before Murphy completely kills off Raimondo. Let me uh, ask you guys this: <laughs> What do you think of this notion that uh, Democrats uh, need to choose a candidate who will? For turnout purposes, that that the VP candidate will have a turnout impact. I don't buy it. I mean, I just don't think. I don't know that. Uh, tell me where that has happened before. In right. in two, in 1960, John Kennedy chose Lyndon Johnson, and he was very helpful. But because he had a machine in Texas, and they needed to win the state of Texas, where has a vice presidential candidate carried a presidential candidate? Not in modern times. They do a lot more harm than good because there are a lens through which people look at the presidential choice. And because Biden is old, as you said, it's, it's got to be a strong governing choice that can't look cravenly political or light. So, no, it does. And the idea that there's some base group that hates Joe Biden, I mean, we have this fetish now with the base. We all know that the base are voters who vote for you almost no matter what. So most of your attention is to expand your vote, not to pander to make the votes you already have do a handstand on their way to the polls because you don't get anything extra for that. But everybody has a PTSD from 2016 when the turnout Fair enough, but it in was, the African-American community was very low. The turnout among young people was low. Uh, and, uh, and, and you look at the polling, you look at the polling right now and Biden you know, th- that enthusiasm number is haunting to uh, to to Democrats. It is, but I, I think if you look back at 2016, and I, I'm a big Tim Kaine fan, but I don't think, I, I think if you replace Tim Kaine with somebody else, I, I don't know that that changes the outcome right. of Hillary the was still Hillary. That was right. the problem and, they had. And the truth is, is, there's a reason why most of the signs that you print up have uh, font differences in the sizes of uh, the president and vice president. <laughs> I mean, it just, I, and look, I, I think we, we all overcalculate this, right? You start looking at, 
well, you know, vice president could help me in such and such a state and this region. And I, I think yeah. you can get sort of wrapped up in an Excel spreadsheet that is not helpful well, at all. It's a graveyard. I mean, uh, yeah. Vice President Ferraro delivered all women. Uh, vice President Benson delivered Texas. I mean, they can't deliver a pizza, let alone a state. Right. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Don't get in the way. Don't hurt Biden by be strong, credible, and impressive so no damage is done to Joe. And don't give Trump an ideological angle for the burbs. There's two moments that this decision will highlight. One is the decision-making process. It is the first essential, it's essentially the first presidential decision that Joe Biden will make, right? So how did the process go? What were the, what was his thinking and how did he, he rationalize this out and how does he talk about it? And secondly, does this person, the, 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 the time in which we're going to get introduced most to this person is going to be during one debate. Can this person hold their own against Mike Pence? Yep. I, I mean, that, that to me is the electoral, really the, the electoral, uh, the, the, the most you're going to get out of this from a political standpoint. Well, and in, from that standpoint, there are a lot of people uh, right. who, who might uh, do well. Kamala Harris is a very able uh, former prosecutor who can, carry a, a case and she would be carrying a brief in there uh for uh joe biden we've heard you know there there are a lot of people who who could uh who could fit that bill guys we ought to hear what the uh what our, sense, our right? faithful hey, listeners before we get before we get yeah. to mailbag i want one thing i want gibbs doesn't give a damn about our faithful listeners that's what he's doing <laughs> no no clearly <laughs> I'm purely love, mercenary he's here for the I, 50 dollars. i love both our faithful <laughs> listeners listen i'm i'm <laughs> I want to just two seconds on this because I, 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 you and I talk about this a bit, Axe, but I thought there was an interesting question in that Washington Post poll uh, asked of both, of, of both candidates, who has the mental sharpness yeah. it takes to serve effectively? Subtle, subtle yeah, that, was, that must have been a brutal awakening for Trump. Joe Biden, 53% yes, 43% no. Donald Trump, 46% yes, 52% no. Now, I think this obviously takes on a much mental sharpness. It's a broader definition than just what Trump is trying to do with it. But I thought it was interesting that for everything that's been put behind it from the Trump campaign, it was, uh, it, those, they were very interesting numbers. Apparently, people have decided that if you advise Americans to ingest Lysol, that might be a source of concern in evaluating your mental acuity. It, that, it might I take mean, your mental sharpness score down, yes. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. I mean, again, I think we get through this conventional wisdom of it. It's, it's Absolutely. There is so much riding on this for Trump. He, he has not found a way to disqualify Biden and in the way that he tried to disqualify Hillary. Right. And they clearly have landed on this as you know that biden is not sharp he's lost his mental acuity he's not physically doesn't have the physical stamina so this must have been a right and it's moments like today that that help answer those questions yeah okay let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors and then we'll be back with robert gibbs you know gibbs every once in a while uh on twitter people will write in and say axe you make me nauseous but nausea is nothing to joke about. 
it's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just, you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called relief band. Tell us about relief band. Relief Man is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. It's listener mailbag. Robert, a, a listener named Bill, asked, can Trump ever win a war with Twitter? Even if he wins bat- a battle here and there uh, with his hard-headed cord base, if Twitter were to deplatform him, how else could he instantly reach 80 million followers? There really is no other forum that gives him that kind of access. Uh, What do you think about his fight with uh, Twitter? Well, in some ways, I think he wins the war by having the war. Um, uh, You know, again, I I think he uses it as a great moment of distraction. And my guess is we have not seen the last of these great moments of distraction. Um, uh, You know, he can get the White House press corps quickly into a tizzy about a section of a law um, that that almost nobody in America knows exists. Um, I think, you know, Twitter is an enormously powerful platform uh, for him. His ability not just to reach 80 million people, but to control, um, not always very well, but to control the ability for what people are writing about from the press corps standpoint uh, and for the, the ability to get the reaction that he wants to drive the news of the day has been powerful for him. Um, I, I do not see a scenario in which Twitter will deplatform him. I think it is a slippery slope that they get into um, any any of the business they're into because I, I think um, it, it just becomes almost overwhelming in terms of uh, of fact checking and pulling tweets down. Fact checking Donald Trump is a endless task. I mean, right. With 40 million Through people uh, out of work, maybe 
maybe there's a maybe there's a maybe there's a new WPA program there. They'll end up stark raving mad, but yeah, they could. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's an LSD trip with LSD. No First <laughs> Amendment. They've got to keep him vile as he is. David, I have a question to you from David. Hmm, that's a little <laughs> suspicious, but we'll read it anyway. Is it, I have a is it laden with praise for me? Yeah, actually, it is. <laughs> we it didn't is. pick that one. Um, I have a college student now home with me. With so many politically active college students of voting age getting very likely ready to be home rather than on campus in the fall, what kind of impact, if any, might that have on the presidential vote? First of all, let me say I hope every young person in this country votes, regardless of what your point of view is. I, I just think this is a probably the most consequential election that I've seen in my lifetime. And it's going to say a lot about what the future uh, holds uh, for you. So on my campus, my Institute of Politics has a, 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 a campaign called You Chai Votes, and it's aimed at helping people register uh, and get them getting uh, them what they need to vote in either their home state or in Chicago. Now, on this question, it's really interesting. I'd be eager to hear what you guys think. You know, there are only a handful of, we know American elections because of the Electoral College are this peculiar thing where like eight states decide who's president and the rest of the country watches. And so in those states, those six, seven, eight states that may be determinative here, if students are not there, then they, that could diminish uh, the turnout of, of, of young people in those states. By the same token, if students are home and registered at home, they may be more likely to vote. So I honestly don't know how it nets out. But, but the key is, how, how do young people and students vote in those states that are competitive? And are there more students who exit the states and are at home uh, because of the virus? Or are there more students in the state? And if they're there, uh, um, will they vote at home and make a difference there? I'd add a, a, a note to this that is unrelated but important. A lot has been made about mail-in voting, which is going to be important, obviously, because of the virus. A lot of people don't feel safe in going to places where lots of people are gathering, and where there's talk of a new surge of the virus in the fall. president has campaigned vigorously against this because he says it would, you know, he, he has been very blunt. He thinks it would he, he, he says fraud on the top line and underneath, he says, you know, Democrats would uh, romp if everybody voted by uh, mail. There was a piece in the Times this morning that was interesting that I agree with, which is I think he is jawboning his own supporters who are more apt to use mail-in ballots than others. The Republicans have always had an edge there. He's jawboning them into believing that somehow there's something wrong in using a mail-in ballot, it actually could end up shooting Republicans in the foot, Murphy. Mail-in's good for us. Trump's an idiot. Um, that would be my, my basic <laughs> reaction. And who knows on the college students? So a lot of them vote at home absentee. Now they can vote at home by mail in person or maybe even at the polls, depending on the state. So my guess is it'll be small, but as you say, hard to know. We got a couple of questions, uh, Murphy, uh, that really are directed to you, one from Megan and another from Blake. I'll read Blake's, but you can, you can in include Megan in this. How bad would polls need to be and how late in the year would it, we need to be for GOP senators to begin distancing themselves from Trump with regards to things like issuing subpoenas to former Obama officials? Uh, I would 
broaden that out as Megan did to other issues, thought being that if they know that they have a serious chance of being in the minority in a few months, do you expect Graham McConnell and all to pump the brakes on going after Trump's political enemies? I think the bigger question is, do Graham and McConnell, who are both on the ballot, um, do they cling to Trump? And really, the Republicans in those swing states, more so, uh, you know, Collins, uh, McSally uh, and others, do they cling to Trump uh, if Trump looks like he is in trouble and going down? Blake, on your question about how bad do the polls need to be, they need to be about this bad. The problem is, and this is what politicians always do in either party, so the Republicans are the the absolute trophy uh, people of this right now, which is they quietly panic, quietly panic, quietly panic, and then when it's too late, they start to wiggle publicly to create some distance, thinking, i got to save my skin, but the message reduces to the savvy, cynical electorate as, hey, they're saving their skin. So the only time distancing works to build your own brand is early when it's painful and you get some credit for it, not not late when the house is on fire. So the Cory Gardner's uh, Collins, they will try to say, you know, I I stood up. I'm remembered of the great uh, autobiography of Marcus Wolf, who ran Stasi, the East German secret police, and he was their foreign spy chief. And he, he wrote in his very funny, very arch autobiography after the Berlin Wall fell, I only handled the foreign spying. I didn't do any of the domestic stuff. And at the Christmas party, I was always rude to those guys. You know, So we have one of those, those kind of deals where they're trying to wiggle out. Won't help. Will they back off on Democrat partisan stuff? No, they're fight to the end. Uh, and then uh, I think McConnell will be reelected, but we we will see. Megan's question is, should I ditch? I'm a Republican like you. I'm a traditional person. I don't want to leave the party, but I hate Trump. Should I vote against all the Republicans this year? That is a tough question, Megan. I struggle with it myself. I want to see Trump go. I'm not wild about ideologically a Democratic House and Democratic Senate and Democratic presidency, particularly without my beloved Gia Raimundo there as vice president <laughs> or secretary of treasury. So that is an ideological nightmare for me. So there are days when I hope the Republicans hang on by one vote in the Senate because Biden, who is a good deal maker with the Republicans, uh, that might give him cover inside Democratic politics, not to tilt way over into lefty stuff that in his heart I don't think Joe is for. So and I can argue it kind of helps Joe. On the other hand, I'm mad at these uh, these gutless uh, invertebrates. So I don't know yet what I'm going to do about that, but uh, it's a very tough call. My main focus, and there'll be some news on this coming soon, is defeating Donald Trump, organizing Republicans to do that. Oh, news, tantalizing. Yeah, there you go. Look out front page Wall Street Journal. You will be ignoring this, but it's coming. Yeah, and I I presume when you decide whether you're going to throw all the Republicans overboard, you'll announce that here. (laughs) We're, We're known for breaking news here. Let's take a minute to pay some bills here, and then we'll be right back. All right, that last call time, you guys. All right, I have a last call here, which is a salute, and I'm going to class this outfit up a little bit. The great George Will, 
who has been an absolute high lantern in the cause of traditional conservatism with his column for a long time, has a terrific, wonderful, every word perfect column out, I think two days ago, maybe three in the Washington Post. I highly encourage you to drop whatever you're doing, unless you're flying a commercial airliner, and read it immediately. In it is a quote, and you guys can Google this, from T.S. Eliot about the Republican Party. I'm going to quickly read his setup line and a, and a wonderful bit of prose. Will writes, in 2016, the Republican primary gave its principal nomination to a Bulgarian and then toiled to elect him. And to stock Congress with invertebrates, who's unswerving abjectness has enabled his institutional vandalism and voiced no serious objections to his Niagara of lies, and whom T.S. Eliot anticipated. Here's the wonderful prose. We are the hollow men, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass. Well done, George Will. Couldn't be more accurate. But Murphy's still thinking about whether to vote for him. A, a margin by one to give Biden room to, to operate. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. All right. I, I just want to say how moved I've been by people across this country who watched with utter horror the videotape of George Floyd and have expressed themselves in peaceful protest, which is an important part of democracy. It's a, it's a tool of our democracy and um, should be separated from looting and arson and uh, I also want to say a word about those police officers who have greeted these protesters with an outstretched uh, hand and yeah, yeah. not a clenched fist all over this country. That has been moving to me as well. And my great hope and prayer is that we find a way to bring about change together, understanding that we are in this together and that we have to recognize the humanity in each other. Gibbs? You know, I would build off of that axe and just say that... Um Whenever this topic of race comes up, uh, we almost always find it, we, we find other topics to talk about because it is inconvenient and difficult. And we're never going to move past either where we are or where we've been for hundreds of years without everybody being part of that conversation and without everybody feeling a certain sense of that discomfort. And um, I can't help but think if we, we had this spasm over Colin Kaepernick, but we're, how, how much farther would we be down the road if we'd have started that conversation in an honest and serious way a few years ago or, or, or in many, many other incidents towards that. And I just hope that we reserve the space in our public discourse to have this uncomfortable conversation to look each other in the eye, to walk a mile in each other's shoes, uh, but come out of it on the other side having made some real progress. And I know you speak, Robert, because uh, we're friends. As a son of Alabama, you have seen, not that Alabama is alone in this, this is a national problem, but you've seen the hard edge of race. And I know you speak from a very, a very personal and deep uh, place uh, on this issue. Guys, let's hope for a better week. Uh, for America, and that we uh, that there are not new chapters of horror here uh, to uh, unfold next week, but that we make a turn toward the light. 
Murphy, sorry to take you away from screen printing the Ramondo for vice president t-shirts. It was, <laughs> you know, you, you, you laugh now, you laugh now, but one moment of sanity and, uh, uh, the world will change for a better place with Gina. And I, I agree. We, uh, let's see if we can have a week where we're all Americans together for a change. All right, fellas. Enough pain. All right. Talk soon. Bye.